Hello. Hi. I'm Sarah. I'm Casey. And we are Relatively Relatively Dark. Dark. So how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm going to get into it because this is going to be our first two-parter. All right. Because there's a lot of information. Okay. So today we're going to talk about the murder of Travis Alexander. Okay. Most of you, a lot of you probably have heard of this case and it's a doozy. Okay. And if anybody is interested in this case and they want to look up stuff, there are very, very graphic autopsy crime scene photos out there Mm. if you don't want to see those just be very very careful what you click on when you do your research (laughs) um with that being said we are going to talk about the night of monday june 9th 2008 in mesa arizona okay marie mimi hall she went by mimi okay she is supposed to be leaving the next day for cancun with her friend travis alexander okay And she hasn't heard from Travis all week long. Okay. She actually met Travis at a singles function for the LDS church the previous year. They are both devout Mormons. They went on a few dates, but Mimi decided she just wanted to be friends. And the company that Travis worked for would send their employees on work retreats. And this year, or that year, it was Cancun. Okay. I guess he had made plans previously whenever they were still sort of kind of dating okay so she's like you can take somebody else if you want to mm-hmm. and he's like no it's too late to change plans we're gonna have yeah. a good time we'll have fun whatever right so she can't get a hold of him so she reaches out to some of his friends no one's heard from him no one else has seen him and he has a very close circle of friends from work from church so it's very unusual Odd, for yeah. him to go off the radar for so long yeah so she decides to go to travis's house to see what's going on And she gets there, she knocks, she rings the doorbell, there's no answer. So finally, she calls a friend, and that friend and the friend's boyfriend come over. Okay. They look through the windows, they're checking the doors, all of them are locked. They call another mutual friend and get the code for the garage door. Okay. They enter the house through the garage, and as soon as they get in the house, they notice a very strong odor. Mm. They go upstairs to Travis's room, which is the master bedroom, and the door is locked. So they knock on his roommate's door. Uh, His roommate is Zach Billings, one of his roommates. And Zach opens the door. He says, you know, sorry, I was watching a movie. Didn't hear you knock. Didn't hear the bell ring or anything. Okay. And he tells them that he hasn't heard or seen Travis either. He assumed that he had already left for Cancun. Okay. They're like, no, that's tomorrow. Uh Uh-huh. So where is he at? Well, Zach has a spare key to Travis's room. They open it, and as soon as they open the door, they see blood everywhere. Oh, my gosh. Zach starts making his way down the small hallway in his room toward the ensuite bathroom. And he notices a huge blood stain just before he gets to the bathroom in the hallway. He sees even more blood in the bathroom. And when he looks over to the shower, there he finds his 30-year-old roommate and tells his friends, call 911, Travis is dead. And I'm going to play you a clip from that 911 call that was placed at 1027 p.m. Okay. What's going on? Um, a friend of ours is dead in his bedroom. We hadn't heard from him for a while. We think he's dead. His roommate just went in there and 
I didn't know when, but I, I can give you the phone to someone who went in there. Can, yes, please, can you? Hello. Hi, so what's going on? He's, uh, he, he's dead. He's in his bedroom okay. in, in the shower. Okay, how did this happen? Do you have any idea? No, we have no idea. Everyone's been wondering about him okay. for well, a few said, days. Okay, well, she said that there was blood. So is it coming from his head? Did he come no, from it, 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 It's all over the place. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, a little bit about the victim. Travis Victor Alexander was born July 28, 1977 in Riverside, California. His parents were Gary and Pamela Alexander, and he had six siblings, three sisters and three brothers. Okay. And even though Travis was successful, he was good looking, he was a good person, tons of friends, strong faith. He unfortunately had a very rough upbringing. Hmm. Both of his parents were drug addicts. Uh, Travis and his siblings would often be left alone with no food. Man. And Travis was allegedly beaten by his mother. Hmm. I'd assume all of their children suffered some sort of that, but I don't know for sure. And when Travis was 10, him and his siblings were removed from their home and taken to live with their, I think it was their paternal grandmother. So their dad's mom. She was a Mormon and introduced Travis to the church, and that's when his life took a turn for the better. Okay. At the age of 18, he did a two-year mission in Denver, and when he returned to California, he started working for prepaid legal services, also known as PPL. Okay. It was a marketing company, and Travis was an independent contractor, so he would recruit new members. The more people you recruited, the further up you went in the ranks, that sort of thing. He was very good at his job and interacting with strangers because part of it, it was a similar dynamic to him being on missions. Right. And kind of selling something to people. Travis quickly climbed the ladder at PPL and eventually became a pretty well-known motivational speaker. Hmm. His last motivational speech before his death was in April of 2008, less than two months before. He said in that speech, quote, We don't know what day is our final day here on this earth, but what is for certain is that tomorrow is one day closer. Mm. In 2004 is when he relocated to Mesa, Arizona. And one of those deciding factors in his decision was because they have a very large Mormon community. Okay. He moved into this beautiful five-bedroom, 4,500-square-foot home. He drove a BMW. He was really moving up. Yeah. So now back to the crime scene. Yeah. Uh, Mesa police detective Esteban Flores arrived at the scene just before midnight, and he was soon joined by Maricopa County Deputy Attorney Juan Martinez. Okay. As I said, Travis was found deceased in the shower. He was in the fetal position. His knees were bent up, and his head was kind of slumped on his right shoulder. And Martinez described the position of the body as being contorted. Oh. It looked as though the perpetrator had attempted to rinse off some of the blood. When they first examined the body from the night of June 9th into the morning of June 10th, parts of his body, the fingers and toes especially, had started to turn a dark bluish black color. Yeah. Which indicated that he had been dead for some time because the body had already started to mummify. Mm. Along with the body, a 16-ounce tumbler was in the shower. So they originally thought that it was used to wash blood off of the body, but they're like, well, no, because he was in the shower. Right. They would have just used that. 
So they concluded that it was most likely used to rinse the blood off the sink and in the hallway, which were both covered in blood. So when Zach told the 911 operator that there was blood all over the place, he was not exaggerating. There was blood in the floor, on the bathroom sink, on the window blinds, that pool of blood in the hall, it was on the baseboards, and there was a bloody palm print on the wall. Mm. And it looked as though, you know, whoever had done it had tried to clean up the scene. And along with the tumbler, their theory behind that, all of the bedding was removed from Travis's bed. Hmm. There were no signs of forced entry, nothing was taken, and it seemed like whoever had done this was familiar with the layout of the house. Yeah. While at the scene, investigators collected fingerprints, hair samples, a 25 caliber casing, though no gun or ammo was found in the home. And in the washer with some towels, they found the most crucial piece of evidence in this case. Okay. It was clear that it was put there intentionally in hopes of destroying it. Okay. It was a digital camera. Oh. It suffered, clearly, obviously, severe water damage and it wouldn't turn on. Mm. But there was a memory card. So that memory card was sent off to see if anything could be extracted from it. Right. They also found the missing bedding in the dryer. Mm-hmm. which was just further confirmation that they had done a sloppy cleanup job. Right. One thing that I thought was very ominous was the book that was on Travis's nightstand. Uh, it was a book by Patricia Schultz titled 1,000 Places to See Before You Die. Man. And that's just, that's just sad. Yeah. Um. So... When investigators initially got to the crime scene, they're looking at the body, it was really hard for them to tell exactly what injuries he sustained. Right. Some of them were obvious, but um, the autopsy report revealed that Travis had been stabbed 27 times. He was shot in the temple, and his throat had been slashed literally ear to ear, nearly decapitating him. Man. So this was a brutal attack. Yeah. And Juan Martinez, the deputy attorney, he said that Travis was killed three times over. The stab wound to the chest, the slash to his throat, and the gunshot. Mm -mm -mm. Investigators quickly focused on Travis's two roommates, Mm -hmm. Zach Billings and his other one was Enrique Cortez. They obviously had access to the house and his bedroom. And they went nearly a week in that house and didn't notice the smell. Yeah. When they were questioned, they were like, there's three guys living here. They didn't think much of it. It could have been laundry. could have been dishes. They never imagined that it was a decomposing body. Yeah. Of their friend. I guess that could make sense. Yeah. It, it was odd, though, because Martinez said that one of the first things that he, that, like, stuck out to him at the crime scene was how neat and tidy the whole house was. Okay. So. Everything was in its place. So then I'm like, if it was all neat and tidy. But anyways. Yeah. Um, their alibis checked out, and they were ruled out as suspects. Okay. One of the first things investigators do is start digging into Travis Alexander's life, like they all do. Right. After learning about all he overcame, his success, his accomplishments, the water started to get a little murky. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Travis was a devout Mormon, and in Mormonism, there's something called the law of chastity. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a vow abstaining from sexual relations with anyone outside the bonds of marriage. Right. A vow that is taken very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. Travis had broken that vow, and his friend said that he had two ways of thinking. 
on one hand, he has his strong faith. He wanted to find a good, wholesome Mormon girl to settle down with. And on the other, he was young. He was good looking, successful. He wanted to date around, have a little fun. You know what I mean? Not that one is wrong, one is right. Just he struggled with it. Right. Which I think that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's definitely understandable. Um, Not long after the investigation began, I think it was the day after his body was discovered. Detective Flores gets a call from one of Travis's exes, and she says, you know, she wants to help in any way she can. Mm -hmm. Any information she can give him, she's all about it. This ex of Travis's was a gal named Jody Arias. Okay. The same gal that Travis's friends told detectives that they need to look into. Okay. Because they all said they knew that she had killed him. Okay. So let's get to know Miss Jody Arias a little bit. Okie dokie. Jody Ann Arias was born July 9th, 1980. Her parents were William, Bill, and Sandy. She grew up in Wairika, California. She was raised in a Christian household with good values, stable, middle-class family. Mm-hmm. Um, she has two sisters and two brothers. She had a great relationship with her siblings, but her relationship with her parents eventually got pretty rocky. Her grades started slipping when she became a teenager. She became rebellious, and in eighth grade, she was busted for growing marijuana. Oh, wow. Her parents searched her room after that, and she didn't trust them anymore. She thought they were nosy. She would hide everything from them after that. And she eventually moved in with her boyfriend after her junior year of high school. Okay. Basically, she didn't want a curfew. She didn't want to be told what to do. She wanted to be free to do whatever she wanted. Right. And from the time she became a teenager, she always had a boyfriend. Relationship with one would end, she'd go on to the next one. Right. Fast forward to September of 2006. Jody is now 27 years old. She's living with her boyfriend of four years in Southern California, but she's having financial issues. She learns about a company called PPL mm-hmm. and thought it might be a good opportunity for her. So she attends a PPL convention in Las Vegas, and one PPL employee at the convention happened to have an extra ticket to a banquet that the company was hosting, okay. and him and Jody were set up kind of like a blind date. That man was Travis Alexander. Right. So they hang out all night. They have a good time. Obviously, they're kind of into each other. Travis is in the company of this beautiful blonde bombshell. Jody's got this good-looking, charismatic, funny guy Mm -hmm. to hang out with, and they really hit it off. But she lives in California, and he lives in Arizona. Right. So they enjoy their night, and they go their separate ways. But Jody was super into Travis, and within a couple days of meeting him, she breaks things off with her boyfriend of four years to be with Travis. Mm. (laughs) And even though they got along great, Travis struggled with the fact that Jody wasn't a Mormon. Oh, right. So, just two months after she met Travis, Jody takes part in a ceremony Mm. where she converts to Mormonism. And Travis actually acted as her sponsor. So he oversaw the ceremony that brought her into his religion. And as of February of 2007, they were officially dating. Okay. It was a long-distance relationship, obviously. So they'd meet up in different cities. They'd take out-of-town trips together. Mm -hmm. Seemed to be making it work. And even though they were both Mormons now, they were definitely breaking the law of chastity. Mm -hmm. And it may have seemed like the perfect relationship, Trips, long conversations, lots of intimacy. 
Mm-hmm. But what Jody didn't realize was the more she threw herself at Travis in that intimate way, the more she was reducing her chances of being marriage material mm. in the eyes of a Mormon man such as Travis, okay. which is a very common double standard. Yeah. But anyways, she wanted to be the one for Travis, but it was mostly a physical relationship, wasn't really going anywhere, and it ended in June of 2007. Okay. But Jody's a real conundrum of a human, and she moved from California to Arizona a couple weeks after they broke up. Wow. Supposedly because of the Mormon community that is there and that she now is a part of. According to Travis's friends, he was pretty upset about her moving there. Mm-hmm. And even though he wanted to be done with Jody, get back in good graces with the church, she was nearby now, and she was soon back in Travis's life and back in Travis's bed. Mm. Travis's friend and co-worker Dave Hall, no relationship to Mimi Hall that okay. I know of, he said that their relationship was the roller coaster love-hate type. Okay. And he also said there was, quote, some type of vibe about her that we just didn't like. Hmm. He also said that Travis wanted to live a good moral life, but, quote, that's hard to do when you have someone sneaking into your house, up to your bedroom, getting naked, and crawling into your bed. Uh, yeah. Needless to say, the relationship between Travis and Jody was very puzzling. Yeah. Um, they eventually had another split. And Jody moved back to Wairika with her grandparents in April of 2008 for a fresh start. This is two months before Travis was killed. Okay. After Detective Flores spoke with Travis's friends, they all pointed the finger at Jody. Okay. And he decided that it was time to have a little chat with her. Right. She's asked about her whereabouts in the day surrounding Travis's death. And she tells them that she left California on June 2nd. She had a PPL convention, another one, in Salt Lake City. She makes a pit stop in Southern California, visits some friends, and she's in Salt Lake City the morning of June 5th. Okay. She had also planned on meeting up with her new boyfriend, a man named Ryan Burns, while she was in Utah. Okay. So she's like, that's all I had going on that day. I wasn't anywhere near it. Right. Arizona. So Detective Flores called Mr. Burns, and he tells him, Jody got to his house around 11, the morning of June 5th. That checks out. He said she seemed happy, didn't seem like anything was wrong. Mm -hmm. But two things that he told Detective Flores caught his attention. Okay, what were they? One, she had dyed her hair brown, which was just interesting. Mm -hmm. Because she was this blonde bombshell, like Mm -hmm. I said. Right. And two, uh, Ryan Burns had told him that she had tiny cuts on her fingers that were bandaged that she said were from bartending. Okay. So he just kind of, you know, put that information in his pocket. Yeah. And save that for later. Yeah. Even though some of the details strike investigators as odd, her story about being in Utah was corroborated. Right. Corroborated. That's a hard word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but she wasn't in Mesa. So at this point, the investigation is kind of at a standstill. Right. Like she's the only one that anybody is saying could have and would have done this. So, it's at a standstill until investigators are told that the forensics lab was able to recover the photos on the memory card that was found in the camera from the washing machine. Yes. And after seeing what was recovered from that memory card, Detective Flores heads to Wairika, California, 
and has another talk with Jody on July 15th, 2008. Okay. To kick things off, Flores tells her he knows exactly what happened, and he just came to her for answers regarding some of the details. Okay. So, she goes through the details of her trip once again, a little extra detail. Mm -hmm. She tells him she went to Santa Cruz, stayed the night in Monterey, drove to Pasadena the next day, and she says she was supposed to get on the highway and it would have taken her straight to Salt Lake City. However, she somehow gets off the highway, she's lost for a little while, and she sleeps in her car for about 10 hours. Okay. She reiterates that she was nowhere near Mesa, nowhere near Travis's house. What's crazy, though, is her road trip took a little over 48 hours. Detective Flores brings to her attention, even if she did get lost and sleep in her car for 10 hours, there's still 18 hours that aren't accounted for. Yeah. She had ample opportunity to drive to Mesa, kill Travis, and make it to Salt Lake City by 11 a.m. on the 5th. Yeah. When investigators questioned those who knew Travis, they all consented to giving DNA samples. Okay. Jody included. Mm-hmm. So, Detective Flores drops the bombshell. He says, we have your blood at the scene. We have your hair with blood at mm. the scene. And we have your left palm print at the scene in blood. Wow. That is the palm print that is on the wall. But, no matter what he says, Jody has an answer for everything and is adamant she had nothing to do with his murder. But what Jody doesn't know... Detective Flores knows exactly when Travis was murdered. Okay. And he was murdered on the 4th. And what day was he found again? He was found on the 9th. Okay. So he was there for five days before he was found. Okay. So he knows exactly when he was murdered. And this is when he says, quote, You were at Travis's house. You guys had a sexual encounter, which there's pictures. And I know there's pictures because I have them. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. He asks her if she wants to see them. And she says, I mean, I am curious. Okay. So he proceeds to show Jody pictures of Travis in the shower. He's kind of posing like a little photo shoot type thing. It's not vulgar, just headshot yeah. type stuff. But along with those photos of him in the shower, there's a series of pictures of him and Jody naked on his bed. And they are all date stamped, all time stamped mm -hmm. for June 4th, 2008. At around 5.30 p.m. Mm -mm -mm -mm. So he shows her a racy picture of her on Travis's bed to be like, this is you. Right. This is all of you. And you said you weren't there. Right. And she said, quote, it does look like me. Wow. Wow. A crime reporter in one of the documentaries that I watched about this, Jane, I think it's Velez Mitchell. Mm hmm she said, quote, you can't argue with this kind of evidence, yet she does. <laughs> and she, she denies everything. Yeah. That's narcissism. Oh, for sure. Like this it's right is, in front of you and they yeah. will act like, I don't know what you're talking no, about. We're just touching on Miss Jody Arias. Mm -mm -mm. She says that she knows pictures can be modified and altered and she thinks that date and timestamps can be tampered with too. Flores then shows her a picture that was taken during the murder. Oh my gosh. Apparently, the camera was dropped or something. And in the picture, Travis is laying on the floor on his back. And all you can see is the back of his head and his right shoulder, mm -hmm. like arm. Because it's taken from behind his head. Okay. 
There's blood on his shoulder and back area and around his neck. And in the forefront of the picture, there's a foot and a pant leg. Jody's foot and Jody's pant leg. Yeah. And it's pretty obvious in this picture, Travis is being dragged across the floor. Ugh. She confirms the picture was taken in Travis's bathroom, but claims it's not her foot in the picture. That's not her. <laughs> At this point, there, there's enough evidence for an arrest. But right. Detective Flores wants a confession. Right. And he says to her, quote, There's no doubt in my mind that you did this. None. So you can go until you're blue in the face and tell me you weren't there and you had nothing to do with it. I won't believe you. End quote. Mm-mm-mm. To which Jody responds, quote, There's no reason for it. There's no reason why. There's no reason I would ever want to hurt him. End quote. Okay. Detective Flores then reads Jody her Miranda rights and she's arrested for the murder of Travis Alexander. Okay. He tells her that she'll soon be booked and her mugshot will be taken. And she says, through tears, quote, um, This is a really trivial question, and it's going to reveal how shallow I am. But before they book me, can I clean myself up a little? End quote. Really? And Flora says, you're going to be taken the way you are. Oh my gosh. No. Uh. She's very, like you said, narcissistic, full of herself. Like, that's what you're worried about in your current situation. You just got charged with first-degree murder. With pictures of you at the crime scene. The day it happened, and you're like, before you take my picture, I need to redo my face. Yeah. Good grief. Like, you look like crap, and you're going to look like crap in your picture. Mm -mm -mm. After charging her, Detective Flores leaves the room, and her behavior when she's alone in that room is bizarre. Some of the things that she does, she sings a little bit of Oh Holy Night. Okay. Remind you, she was just crying. Yeah. Even if it was because she didn't want to look ratchet in her mugshot. Right. And then the minute he leaves, she just snaps out of it. Wow. Is there video of this? Yes. You can see every bit of her craziness that you want to. Um, She randomly hums. She goes through the trash. Okay. For a couple seconds, just looks through it, puts it back. I don't know. She takes a piece of paper out of the printer and I can't tell what she's messing with, but it looks like she's messing with something in an outlet, but it's right behind the, her chair, so you can't really see it, but it looks like she's messing with something, and then she's, like, trying to use something to write on the paper. Okay. I don't know what she's doing. One of the craziest things, she gets out of her chair, she kneels down to the floor, and she does a headstand up against the wall. Okay. She just got charged with first-degree murder. Oh what gosh. are you doing? Oh, and I forgot about this, apparently. At one point, she chuckles and she says, still hate me, brat. What? What is this about? Is she talking to Travis? I'm That's like, crazy. I, I don't know what is wrong with this girl. Anyways, um, when it's time for her mugshot to be taken, she asks them, how's my hair? And she grins at them and she smiled for the camera. She smiled for her mugshot for the charge of first degree murder. Mm-mm-mm. In a later interview, she addresses this controversy about her smiling for her mugshot. Mm-hmm. And I will play you a clip of her explanation as to why she did this. Okay. And this one is a little bit more lengthy, so. Okay. There is one thing I wanted to address, and that is uh, my mugshot. I think I did a little tilt on my head and gave a little smile. I, I just want to address that because I think that people don't really understand 
And um, the reason there are a few reasons I did that, and one is um, one is one of my first thoughts when I was actually being booked. I was a little like, "Wow, I see this stuff on TV all the time. This is so interesting. It's it's almost just like it, it is on TV." And um, I thought to myself, "You know, what would Travis do if he were in this situation? This is why I'm here." Um, and you know, barring the fact that he would likely not get himself into such circumstances, he would he would be smiling. He would be like, "Hey, you know." He would just flash this grin that that he always does. And so there was part of that, and then also part of the fact that um, I knew it would be all over the internet. So why not? Um, and then there was also um, the fact that that I know that I'm innocent. And even though this is a very serious thing to be charged with, um, there's no reason for me to be sad. Um, because I know that that I'm not that I'd never hurt Travis, and um, there's just there's no reason to be upset over this in my mind. Um, everything I have faith that in, in the end everything will be made known, everything will come out, and uh, in the meantime, smile, say cheese. I don't I don't even know what to say. She said there's no reason to be upset about it. Okay, maybe you can like maybe find peace if you are innocent. But you're not going to be upset about what happened to him. Yeah, or upset that people think you are capable of doing this to somebody. Ugh. And it's interesting, like, because she's seen this on TV all the time and stuff. I don't care. I Clearly, I watch a lot of true crime stuff. I see stuff like this unfold all the time I'm pretty on sure TV. if you were accused of murder, it wouldn't matter what you've seen on TV. Exactly. I would not be smiling. I would look a wreck because I would be a wreck. Yeah. I mean, if you guys watch that video, I mean, or even just listen to it. I mean, if you don't have, like, a deadpan face, like, really, what the heck is wrong with you? <laughs> um, Lord. Anyways, <laughs> so, yes, she explains Goodness. it that way. The next day, the interrogation continues. This time, they have a female detective go in to question her. They think maybe she can relate to her more. Yeah. You know, try to key into her humanity, get her to open up. But Jody said she would prefer to talk to Detective Flores because he, quote, has been in contact with Travis's family a lot, end quote. What does that ha Whatever. It's not surprising that she is more comfortable talking to men than women. Yep. So he takes over. Jody really starts talking after that. She finally admits that she was at Travis's house the night what that he was killed. Know? She tells him that she got there at 3 a.m. They both went to bed and then they woke up that afternoon and were intimate. And Flores says, was it just you and Travis there? And Jody says, quote, it's better if everyone thinks that. What? And he's like, why? Are, are you protecting someone? And she says, quote, there were two people there. One was a guy and one was a girl. They killed Travis. End quote. Okay. Yeah. So she tells Detective Flores that she's taking pictures of Travis in the shower and all of a sudden these two intruders barge in. She described them as one guy, one girl, both white Americans, both wearing all black and ski masks. She said she then chickened out like a little bee, her own words, and ran into the closet. The guy follows her and holds a gun to her head. She said he told her not to go anywhere and then instructed the girl to come in and quote finish it. Jody said that the female intruder had a knife and there was a struggle between the two of them. Eventually, her attacker gave up and they both, the two intruders, both started arguing with each other. According to Jody, the girl wanted to kill her, but the guy kept saying things like, 
that's not why we're here. That's not what we're here for. That's not what we came here for. Okay. Um, she got a cut on her finger. Then she said the guy took her license out of her wallet, told her, don't tell anyone anything about this. I'll do the same thing to you and to your family mm-hmm. because he had her address now. And they finally let her go. She ran out of the house and drove as fast as she could to Salt Lake City. That was her story. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Sounds like it's straight from a movie or a TV show. Right? Like with the, that's not what we're here for and finish it. Oh, and the fact that her and the girl struggled with a knife and her, the other girl just gave up. Yeah. And the whole taking the license out of the wallet. I do not know how many movies I have seen that in. I mean, and she already referenced movies and stuff, thinking it was cool, pretty much. Yeah. So. She sees it on TV. It's interesting. So she wants, it's like, it's like she's trying to make her life out to be like that. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah. Mm Mm-mm. So, Detective Flores asks her, he's like, you didn't run to a neighbor, you didn't call the police, and she said she was freaked out of her mind. Who talks like that, for one? Yeah. And Flores says, quote, I've done this for a long time, (laughs) and this is the most far-fetched story I've ever heard, and it's not going to help you. (laughs) And so he informs her that she is still being charged with first-degree murder. Right. Enter Deputy Attorney Juan Martinez. Okay, okay. He is the one that was at the crime scene at the beginning right. doing the walkthrough with Detective Flores. Yeah. He would be the prosecutor on this case. Um, also, her story didn't explain her bloody handprint. Yeah. Well, is she? I wonder if she threw that in because she mentioned she cut her finger. Well, you said that they mentioned that she had bandages on her fingertips, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a hand. That's just the fingertips. Yeah. And if I don't think that that's enough for a bloody handprint. Yeah. Well, I mean, she could have, I don't know, went to help Travis and he's bloody and then hurt. It could be yeah his blood. It was his blood. I but guess I just kind of thought that with everything that she threw in there. Yeah. She might have thrown in the explanation for the bloody handprint too. Yeah. But and none in of the that video, was really obvious. The interrogation videos, which you can watch all of these, um, she's showing detective flores where she cut her finger mm-hmm. conveniently it was right in the crease of one of her fingers and you can tell he's having a really really hard time finding <laughs> where that cut is just saying um, sorry it's not funny it's just it's baffling it's insane how much she thinks that she can actually get away with probably so it's not like funny haha it's like seriously <laughs> i don't know how it's what? not necessarily funny but it's amusing in a way yeah i know i don't know, I don't know exactly what, but it, this is but... what narcissists do and stuff at mm-hmm. at this point we don't know if she actually right did this but her story is a bit odd yes so everyone who had been working on this case knew that it wasn't a slam dunk for a first degree murder conviction as you know premeditation must be proven and that was their biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. Beth Karras, a former prosecutor herself and now legal analyst, she said, quote, premeditation could be weeks and months of planning, but it could also be just a couple of minutes. Yeah. I had never thought of it that way, but. Yeah. So they have to not only prove that she killed Travis, but they have to prove that she planned to kill Travis. Right. And it wasn't this in the moment crime of passion. Yeah. The prosecution was seeking the death penalty 
due to the horrible brutality of the crime. Mm-hmm. And when the media got a hold of this story, Mm-mm-mm. it was game over. They went ham. Yeah. And the murder of Travis Alexander made national headlines. And Jodi Arias jumped in front of the camera anytime she had a chance to. I don't doubt it. You're not surprised by that? <laughs> nope. Um, I am going to play you a couple clips from the same interview she did with Inside Edition in 2008. Okay. So this is right after her arrest. Very soon after her arrest. Okay. What really happened in there? In a nutshell, two people took Travis's life. Two monsters. You did not shoot Travis. No, I've never even shot a real gun. You did not stab him 27 I've never, times. No, that's, that's heinous. Or I've never. Or slit his throat from ear to ear. I can't imagine slitting anyone's throat. Then she says this gem of a comment. No jury is going to convict me. Why not? Because I'm innocent. And you can mark my words on that one. No jury will convict me. So she's very confident. Yeah. That no jury will convict her. Yes. In another interview conducted while she was in jail, mm-hmm. she said, quote, You know, I need to be honest, and the evidence is very compelling, but none of it proves that I committed a murder. None of it proves that I committed a crime. Um, what it does substantiate is what I did tell detectives, end quote. Whatever you say. Yeah. Jody. In the same interview, between takes, I guess, she takes a moment to put on some makeup and says, quote, Don't roll the tape yet. And does a little giggle. (laughs) In another interview, she actually asked the interviewer to hold her compact mirror for her. So she could do her makeup. Good grief. Ma'am, do you know why you're being interviewed? You're being interviewed because people are accused of murdering somebody. Yeah. And she was like, I've never done my makeup in front of a stranger before. Well, I guess you're not that much of a stranger. And she's like very like flirtatious and just... Stupid. Anyways. that's disturbing. Yes. Um, Beth Karras from earlier, she also pointed out in the documentary that I watched that she is a defense lawyer's worst nightmare because she couldn't stay away from the media. But someone had to defend her. And Kirk Nurmi was appointed as Jody's public defender. Okay. With Jennifer Wilmot acting as co-counsel. Okay. Nurmi was, I think it was interesting, he was this tall big guy but he was real soft-spoken real quiet and journalist and crime author brian i think scoliff Mm -hmm. sorry if that's wrong (laughs) he described juan martinez the prosecutor as quote a small gentleman but when it came to questioning witnesses he is a giant cool so they're like complete opposites Nermi, her defense lawyer said that the first time he met jody it was very casual it was lighthearted, not what you would expect from somebody who, whose life was on the line. Right. They are seeking the death penalty. And he, the best way he could describe it would be like talking to someone at Starbucks. Wow. So she's very chill. She's a cucumber in there, which is she's weird. She's not taking it serious at Do- all. Doesn't seem like it. He also said defending Jody Arias was a real challenge. He said she would call him almost every day, which was highly unusual. And apparently, supposedly, allegedly, whatever, she asked him to look after her cat. Okay. While she was being held in prison. (laughs) 
what is wrong with you oh my gosh oh she drives me crazy and i have been like sucked into this case for like two weeks now so it's, yeah uh, anyways even kirk nermy knew that they needed a new strategy because he knew that the intruder story just didn't make sense right and in july of 2010 jody ditches the masked intruder story and admits it never happened i can tell you are utterly shocked <laughs> what the, there were no intruders oh my gosh Oh my, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You have to laugh when something like this is oh, a little palate cleanser. So with the intruder story, I had two initial thoughts whenever I saw the picture of him on the floor. So I'm going to show you this so you can see what I'm talking about. Okay. My initial thoughts on this picture, I know everybody listening can't see it, but... The foot in the forefront of the picture is not wearing a shoe. Yeah. Why would intruders take their shoes off? Yeah. <laughs> what? And she said that they were in all black. And to me, That's this not... pant leg looks like it is like a dark blue. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look yeah. like it's a black. No, it doesn't. Anyways, but the shoe thing, why would they take their shoes off? They Anyways, wouldn't. Exactly. There were no intruders. Yes. So we do know that now. Mm -hmm. Um... So she ditches that whole story and then tells her new story, the real story about what happened. She says she was taking pictures of him in the shower. She dropped the camera. Travis flipped out and attacked her. Okay. She admitted to killing Travis, but claims it was self-defense. Okay. And on January 2nd, 2013, nearly five years after the murder of Travis Alexander, the trial of Jody Arias began. Okay. And that is where I'm going to leave you all for part one. We okay. Have, we have a lot more to talk about. So. Okay. So, um, he attacked her. Yes. That is her story. And her self-defense took how many stab wounds to 20. stop her attacker? 27. And so she had to kill him three times to get him to stop? Well, he needed 27 stab wounds. He needed to nearly be decapitated and he needed to be shot in the head. So. We will get into more of that in part two, along with all the craziness of the trial and everything mm -hmm. else. Cliffhanger. You're welcome. Email us your personal stories, case suggestions, thoughts, theories. Feedback, if you want. Mm-hmm. Rate, review. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter so you are there when something is posted. <laughs> uh join our facebook group yes become a relative by joining our patreon yes for, for extra it. tidbits yes and thanks for listening you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> bye guys bye 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 goodbye